My name is Kent, and I'm one of the pastors here, and uh, I, I do like Lent, and I do like the focus that we've got this season on uh, spending some extra time contemplating and listening to God and praying to God, so hopefully uh, you'll have some stories to tell about that too. We started this journey last week, and it's uh, 40 days. Uh, Lent is the 40-day journey toward Easter, and we started on the road with Jesus, and we are looking at various things that happen along the road, um, like mealtime with Jesus. We're doing that in the middle of the week. But on Sundays, we're focusing on how Jesus met people along the road and what that meant for them. And then by looking at how they reacted to Jesus on the road, maybe we'll discover some things about how we can also uh, react when we meet Jesus on the road. And last week, we, fl- we reflected on the, the place where this started, which was the 40 days in the wilderness, the wilderness road, where we saw Jesus in some really unexpected places. We saw Jesus who was hungry, Jesus who was tempted, Jesus who was in pain, Jesus who was disturbed and troubled. We saw these things and we discovered that if Jesus experienced that, then perhaps there's hope for us to recognize Jesus along all the roads that we take. Maybe even in unexpected places that we go, we can see that Jesus is right there with us. And then we spent a little time in this practice of contemplation trying to listen to see what God might have to say to us along that road, especially if we were in a wilderness place, a difficult place. Is, is Jesus still there, and what would Jesus have to say to us? So as a little kind of review of that road, I've got a little video clip I'm going to show you, and I want to invite you to watch this. And as you are, I'd just like to invite you to continue that kind of contemplation of uh, where is Jesus along the road, and where would he be uh, along your road, and what would it look like if you were in a wilderness and experiencing this? So... Why don't you show this little clip and then we'll continue to reflect on Jesus on the wilderness road. Thank you. 
I liked the way that ended when he said, and now I'm back. And this is where we're going to pick it up today. Jesus is back from the wilderness and now he's heading on these roads that are all leading toward the cross. And what's the next road uh, that we find him on? And we're going to read about that in John chapter 7. So if I could get you to open your Bibles up and read along with me. John chapter 7, verse 37 to 52. If you've got a Bible, uh, open it up or your Kindle or your iPhone or grab a Bible from one of the chairs. I think it's helpful if you can read along and read about the next road. And as Jesus begins his ministry on the road in Galilee, John chapter 7, starting with verse 37. On the last and greatest day of the festival, Jesus stood and said in a loud voice, Let anyone who is thirsty come to me and drink. Whoever believes in me, as Scripture has said, rivers of living water will flow from within them. By this he meant that the Spirit, whom those who believed in him were later to receive. Up to that time the Spirit had not been given since Jesus had not yet been glorified. And on hearing his words, some of the people said, Surely this man is a prophet. Others said, He is the Messiah. Still others asked, How can the Messiah come from Galilee? Does not Scripture say that the Messiah will come from David's descendants and from Bethlehem, the town where David lived? Thus the people were divided because of Jesus. Some wanted to seize him, but no one laid a hand on him. Finally, the temple guards went back to the chief priests and the Pharisees who asked them, Why didn't you bring him in? No one ever spoke the way this man does, the guards replied. You mean he has deceived you also, the Pharisees retorted? Have any of the rulers or of the Pharisees believed in him? No, but this mob that knows nothing of the law, there is a curse on them. Nicodemus, who had gone to see Jesus earlier and who was one of his own, asked, Does our law condemn a man without first hearing him to find out what he has been doing? But they replied, Are you from Galilee too? Look into it, and you will find that a prophet does not come out of Galilee. This is God's word, and it's true, and we can rely on it. I'm just curious as we start this morning, is anybody here planning a vacation? Anybody planning spring break, a spring break trip? Some of you are. Anybody already starting to plan for summer vacation? Okay, would you dare share some of the destinations you're thinking about for vacation? Anybody? Tampa? New York? Alaska? Cozumel? Okay. I'm just curious, is there anybody here planning to go to Jacksonville, Texas? Anybody? Has anybody here ever been to Jacksonville, Texas? I didn't think so. Okay, here's the scoop on Jacksonville, Texas. It's a small, dying town in the middle of nowhere with high crime and bad weather. That's how it's described. And Jacksonville, Texas is officially ranked as the worst place to live in Texas. So if it's the worst place to live, I'm not sure that it's ever going to be a tourist destination. It's probably the last place you would want to visit. In fact, if you go to Texas, you go to places like Dallas or Austin or San Antonio. There is some very nice places to visit in Texas. Jacksonville is not one of those. Now, if you were a tourist in Israel in the days of Jesus, 
the last place you would go is Galilee. This is not on anybody's tourist destination. Galilee is in kind of the northern part of Israel. It was despised and looked down upon by just about everybody. If you want to go someplace important in that day, well, you would go to Judea. And you'd probably go to Jerusalem. That is the place where you'd go. This is the place where the movers and shakers are. This is the kind of center of the culture, the center of their religion. All good things happen in Jerusalem and Judea. Nothing good ever comes from Galilee. Now, John makes it very clear that if we're going to understand the roads that Jesus is traveling on as he's going toward Calvary, those roads all start in Galilee. In fact, about a dozen times in his early ministry, he is described by John as being on the road in Galilee, visiting these various little towns. This is very important. And now, um, I was curious, when I first read this passage that we just read a moment ago, the first time I read it, the very first question I had was, why is Galilee so despised? Clearly, these people are looking down on Galilee and uh, have nothing good to say about it. So I looked it up. And I came across a commentator who was kind of complaining about our understanding of the kind of geopolitical landscape of Palestine in Jesus' day that many of us read when we read about Jesus and we read about the whole, what we call the Holy Land. We kind of picture it as being this kind of unified region where everybody who lived in the Holy Land was kind of from the same faith. They kind of had the same political preference. They had kind of the same background. They had kind of the same view on everything, that everyone was kind of uh, believing in God and they were kind of opposed to Rome and that there was this kind of like nation that was all the same. And this commentator lamented how this is such a distortion of reality and how so many people don't recognize the complexity of what was going on in that region in that time. And I have to confess that I'm one of those who doesn't often stop to think about how uh, uh, unique was the political situation in that area. So to help us out today, I wanted to give you a map so that we could look at exactly the lay of the land here. So if you haven't found it yet in your bulletin, I'd like to invite you to take it out. It's on the back of the cell sheet the little gray insert that was in the bulletin, there's a map that will give you a great picture of the area that we're talking about this morning. And if you look at it, the first thing you'll notice is that it's oriented north and south. So at the top of the map, to the north, is Galilee. And you'll see the little towns of Galilee, uh, Nazareth, and Cana, and the areas that early in Jesus' ministry, these towns were mentioned. This is the region we're talking about up north. If you look down to the south, the bottom half of the map, you'll see Judea. And at the middle of Judea is the capital, Jerusalem. Now, this map has a few roads on it, a few of the key roads. Do you notice anything about where all the roads lead on this map? All the roads lead to Jerusalem. Like, there's a hub right there that this is a kind of the center of their universe. Now, I want to understand a couple things about the landscape and what made Galilee so different from Judea. So as you're looking at these areas, I'm going to be describing the difference between the region on the south, the north, Galilee, and the region on the south, uh, Galilee, Jerusalem. Okay, number one, Galilee, the region up on the north, was racially mixed. So that for over 800 years, there has been a lot of influence of kind of the neighboring countries. And all the countries that surrounded Galilee were heavily influenced by the Greeks. And so that would have had a heavy influence on the people who lived in Galilee. 
They would have been a, a much more diverse population. Even in some of the more conservative cities, there would have been a lot of influence that came from these Greek countries that were all around Galilee. Number two, Galilee was isolated geographically from Judea. So you've got all of these kind of Greek-influenced countries uh, above Galilee, and right below Galilee, what do you have? Can you tell? Samaria, which was another non-Jewish territory. It was considered non-Jewish, even though many of the Samaritans were kind of half-breed or had some Jewish descendants in them, but they were not considered to be Jews. This isolated Galilee from Judea. Number three, politically, Galilee has been under kind of a local rule for generations. Kind of local princes who were supposedly kind of free from Roman influence. They had a lot more kind of freedom in their ruling. Jerusalem and Judea was ruled directly by a Roman governor. And the rule was often much more harsh, much more difficult for them to bear. Number four, economically, Galilee was actually a very wealthy area. It was a very rich agricultural area. There was a lot of fishing. And because of these resources, they were much more wealthy than the Judean people because their country was much more mountainous and barren. Often this led to like envy of those who were in Judea, of those who actually lived in Galilee because they were much wealthier. Culturally, the Judeans despised the Galileans, the Galileans because they were perceived as being these like country bumpkins. They were kind of like backward people. They were kind of isolated from the capital. And so this kind of lack of sophistication, uh, kind of compounded by the Greek influences that were part of their culture, made them culturally despised by the Jews in Jerusalem. Linguistically, this showed up because the Galileans had what you might call a drawl. Their way of language was kind of like, uh, it was a very different dialect than the Judeans spoke, and it was perceived as being kind of lazy. They like actually kind of slurred their consonants, okay? So it'd be like you could hear if somebody was from Galilee. You could hear they, they spoke differently. And they often became, because of this slurring language, they were actually like the butt of jokes of people in Judea. And then finally, number seven, religiously, the Judeans despised the Galileans because they also thought that their observation of the Jewish rituals was very lax. They thought that they were lazy. And a lot of this stemmed from the, the, just the reality that they were so far removed from the temple in Jerusalem. It was difficult for them to come to the temple to experience their rituals in person in the temple. And so they were perceived as being backward theologically also, that their, their religious um, pedigree was questioned. So the result of all this was to say that even the best Jew in Galilee was looked down on by all the Jews who were in Jerusalem. And first century, if a Jewish Galilean had gone to Jerusalem, it would have been like sending somebody from Jacksonville, Texas to New York City. You would have known immediately they're out of place and they would have immediately felt like they were not welcome there. They just felt like they were out of it. They were not one of us. For this reason... Any suggestion that the Messiah could come from Galilee was immediately dismissed. The people were like, you know, prophets and messiahs, they're going to come from Judea because no good thing ever comes from Galilee. Everybody believed that. The rabbis actually had a saying about this. They said, if you want to be rich, move to the north. If you want to be wise, you go to the south. 
So there's this, this huge kind of stereotype about people who came from. And obviously the rabbis valued wisdom and the religious tradition much more than wealth. And so their faith was focused on being close to Jerusalem, something that the Galileans could never have. The Bible actually picks up on this prejudice a lot, and you probably are familiar with some of the passages. If you went backwards in the book of John, you'd see right at the beginning of the book, John chapter 1, we get this attitude when somebody says, can anything good come from Nazareth? And Nazareth would be one of those little towns in Galilee. Can anything good come from there? That was just kind of the common, it was almost like a kind of common catchphrase. This fits well with the stuff that we just read in chapter 7, when they're kind of raising questions about who is Jesus, and some go, oh, is he a prophet, or is he a, a Messiah? And they, they ask the question, well, where is he from? Well, he's from Galilee. Well, then he can't. Search, they say, and you will find that no prophet has arisen from Galilee, which actually wasn't completely true, because there was a couple that did come from Galilee. They actually mock Nicodemus, who's trying to kind of defend Jesus by saying, well, are you from Galilee too? Kind of like guilt by association. Well, if you're going to defend the Galilean, that must mean you're one of them because nobody else is willing to defend them. So these comments kind of drive the kind of contempt that people had for the Galileans and maybe helps us understand a little bit about the reaction that we read in chapter 7. Look again at verse 40. On hearing these words from Jesus about the, the living water, some of the people said, Surely this man's a prophet. And others said, he is, the he is the Messiah. But others said, how can the Messiah come from Galilee? I find it interesting that as we're on the road with Jesus, we're going to find that this is what Jesus does. He actually polarizes people constantly. So that the kind of conclusion of this little story of Jesus in Galilee is that there were people divided. Some believed, but some doubted. This is what happens every time somebody encounters Jesus along the road. We have this kind of like option. What are we going to believe about this? Are we going to believe in him or are we going to doubt? So I think this is an option that we might also have to pay close attention to when we meet Jesus on the road. So back to the specific text that we looked at in John chapter 7. The Feast of the Tabernacles is just coming to a close. And this feast, by the way, is a feast that celebrates God's provision for the people when they were in the wilderness. And they celebrate that. It's actually one of the longest feasts that the Jewish people celebrate. And they had lots of different rituals to remind them of the various ways that God had provided for them. And one of the rituals was a ceremonial drawing of the water. So they would draw water up out of the well, ceremonially celebrating the fact that when the people were wandering in the wilderness, the only way that they were able to survive was because God provided water for them. This would have been a very moving and significant part of the ceremony. And I wonder if this isn't when Jesus stands up in front of them and says, in a loud voice, let anyone who is thirsty come to me and drink. Whoever believes in me, as the scripture has said, rivers of living water will flow from within them. If it happened about the time when they were drawing the water, it certainly would have taken the people back. It would have started to think about all the places in Scripture where prophets had stood up before them and had said, listen, God provides water for the thirsty. Listen, God provides water in the wilderness. Listen, God provides for his people. This was the promise that the prophets had foretold. 
Certainly these people who are listening to Jesus say this in the context of this feast would have remembered words like this. In that day, the prophet Joel says, in that day the mountains will drip with new wine and the hills will flow with milk. All the ravines of Judah will run with water. A fountain will flow out of the Lord's house. They're looking forward to this day when God will provide living water to his people. Or perhaps they remembered words from Isaiah, For I will pour water out on the thirsty land and streams on the dry ground. I will pour out my spirit on your offspring, my blessing on all your descendants. They're hearing these words of the prophet as Jesus is talking about living water, and they're beginning to imagine not just what has been said, but what will be coming one day as God fulfills his promise. Surely God is my salvation, Isaiah says. I will trust and not be afraid. The Lord, the Lord himself is my strength and my defense. He has become my salvation. With joy, you will draw water from the wells of salvation. I will sprinkle clean water on you and you will be clean. I will cleanse you from all your impurities and from all your idols. I will give you a new heart and put a new spirit in you. I will remove from you your heart of stone and give you a heart of flesh. And as these words are going through the minds of these people, they're no doubt beginning to anticipate that great day when God will deliver his people. And it will be like water rushing into the wilderness to provide life for those who desperately need life. Jesus is pushing all their buttons. And when he's talking about this living water and this gift of the Holy Spirit that is about to come, he grabs their imaginations, I think. He grabs their intention in a way that just stimulates their thinking about what has that looked like in the past and how might that inform what it's going to look like in the future. Maybe they think about how God has done this when the Spirit of God was hovering over the chaos of the waters at creation, and the Spirit hovered over the waters, and then God created good things out of the chaos. Perhaps their minds imagine the people of God walking through the waters of the Red Sea as God parts the waters. Perhaps they're remembering Noah being delivered on the ark through the waters, receiving salvation by the grace of God. Maybe they're remembering the people wandering in the wilderness and the the striking of the rock and the waters gushing forth to provide life to the people when they need it. Or maybe they're thinking about Jonah delivered through the waters. Or maybe they're thinking about the prophets and their announcement of an oasis, a life-giving oasis in the middle of the desert. The words of Jesus are inspiring hope and they're inspiring this belief that as these people are, they're about to break from this festival and head home on all these various roads and they're going to be thinking about the fact that God wants to deliver them. God wants to give them life. God wants to bring life in their wilderness. He wants to bring hope in their place. And they start to imagine God doing this. And Jesus is saying this in such compelling language with such compelling force that the people are starting to believe maybe this Jesus is a prophet. Maybe he is the Messiah. Maybe he is the one that God is going to send to bring about this renewal, to bring about this flood of life-giving water. Maybe Jesus is the one, they begin to think. But oh wait, he's from Galilee, isn't he? What do you think? Can the one walking the back roads of Galilee be the one God uses to redeem this broken world? 
to restore all things, to bring living water in the desert? Could it be this one? He's not coming from the cultural center. He's not coming from the place of power. He's not coming from where the movers and shakers are living. He's coming from this little out-of-the-way place. Could this be the one that God uses to redeem the world, to fix all that is broken, to set right everything that is wrong? Could this be the one? Could he come from Jacksonville, Texas? Or Palo? Or Ely? Or Watkins? Or Marion? Or Cedar Rapids? Could this Jesus be walking these back roads right now to bring redemption to his people, to restore all that is broken, to bring life-giving water to people who are in a wilderness? Could this Jesus be the one? The scripture gives some fantastic promises about what this could look like in this invitation from Isaiah 55. Come, all you who are thirsty, Come, buy without money. Isaiah 58. The Lord will guide you always. He will satisfy your needs in a sun-scorched land. He will strengthen your frame. You will be like a well-watered garden, like a spring whose waters never fail. Could this Jesus be the one who brings that about? And here's the question. Do you believe or do you doubt it? So we gave you a little opportunity last week to spend some time in reflection on some of this and a little bit of contemplation. And we wanted to give you a few moments here at the conclusion of this message to do the same thing. And uh, we're going to do this every week so that we try to create space where people can uh, draw near to God, maybe have a little solitude, a little time for reflection. Um, We're also going to try to give little tips or pointers along the way. So one of the things we heard last week from people was, well, what do you actually hear? If you stop and listen, what do you actually hear? Do you hear an an audible voice or what is it? And I'll confess to you that I have never heard an audible voice. I think there's some who would claim they have heard an audible voice from God. What I get is a sense or a prompting or a direction. or uh, My attention is focused in a certain direction. And uh, so maybe as you're spending time in this contemplation, you can do that. We're going to give you a couple questions this morning to kind of reflect on as you do this to help maybe help that listening. Uh, we actually did this as a staff a couple months ago. It's an exercise that was designed for kids, and so that worked about, about the right level for our staff to do. So um, the, the question is, the, the image is this, wherever we go, Jesus is with us. So the exercise asked us to close our eyes and imagine, if Jesus is with you, where do you see him? Can you actually picture him? sitting in this chair, standing in the corner, holding your hand, walking beside you. Where is he actually in the room? Where do you picture him as you're on this road or on this journey? And then the second question was, and what is he saying to you right now? Where do you see Jesus and what is he saying to you right now? So that might be a couple questions that might help you focus in this couple minutes of solitude as you contemplate and listen for the voice of God. We're going to give you a chance to do that right now.
feels kind of nice, doesn't it, to just sit in the quiet? I like that, and I just got me all off track with what I was going to say because I really don't think I ever thought about where Jesus is, and I, I think maybe for me to make him a person sitting beside me is too small. So I'm thinking that he's in like a, a halo kind of around me, protecting me. I don't know. I'm going to have to do some more thinking about that. I don't know about you, but it's, it's kind of a, a neat concept to think about what, how is he really with us? And we know that he's with us, and I would like you to pray with me this morning, and let's talk to him. Our dearest Heavenly Father, we thank you so much that you are with us. You are such a good God, and we just thank you that you are right here, and you listen to what we say, and we thank you so much for giving your son, Lord, this time of year, the ultimate sacrifice is what our eyes focus on and our ears, and I just pray, Lord, that you would help us to take time, especially now in this season where we're focused a little more on you, to to listen and to talk to you. The song we sang this morning said that you are closer than a friend, and we thank you so much that you are with us. Lord, I just lift up our many th- things that we have to worry about. I pray that you would take those from us this morning, and I'd like to give many of those to you as we pray. Lord, I just pray that you would be with our world. It's a mess. I don't know if it's worse than it ever was, but it's certainly a mess, Lord, and we give that mess to you. We pray that you would be with those missionaries who are serving in other places in the world, Lord, that you would just be with them and and bless them and speak to them. Lord, we pray for our country as we are making some big decisions in the coming year, and we just pray that you would lead in that, that you would help people to make good decisions about our leadership, Lord, and we pray for the violence in our country that you would reach in and that you would help those who are Christians to continue to pray fervently that the violence would stop. Lord, we pray for our city and for our church, that we would be a beacon, and that we would, each of us, be loving and caring to those people who need love and care, and that we would listen for your voice as to who we should speak to and how we should say things to each other. Lord, I pray for those in our church that need healing. There are many who are waiting for answers to prayer, Lord. I pray that you would reach down to those people and calm their hearts and help them to listen to you for those answers. I pray, Lord, for people who are in pain, all kinds of pain, Lord, family pain, people who are separated from you, family members who are struggling, Lord, I pray that you would help us to not be judgmental, but to be caring. Lord, I pray that you would help us to take time for ourselves to listen to you. Maybe not in big chunks, Lord, but little chunks during the day to just stop and listen. I pray that you would create good things from our chaos. Lord, we pour out things 
our hearts to you, and we pray that you would pour out your blessings on us. We thank you so much for being the great God that you are and everything that you have given to us, Lord. We thank you. We pray that you would be with us as we go through this week, that we might take time to listen to you. In Jesus' name we pray these things. Amen.